going to wrap up our series called Greatest Hits. So I am super pumped to talk to you guys tonight. I'm really excited to teach about this particular part of the Old Testament as we conclude our series on Greatest Hits of the Old Testament, right? Um, and so the first week, we talked about how we're made in the image of God. The second week, we kind of talked about um, that original covenant with Abraham and God, and then we moved to the next week talking about um, Moses and the people at Sinai and, and continue talking about God's covenant. And so we've gone through like the basics of these themes. Last week, we got to talk about um, the kings of Israel and kind of this idea of not giving into idolatry. And so tonight, we're going to end the series with the book that ends the Old Testament. Cool? Um, and this is one of those books that I love. It's called Malachi. So if you go to the book of Matthew, which is the beginning of the New Testament, and you flip a few pages back, that's Malachi right there. It's only four chapters, because I like these shorties. The, sh the short ones, they're short but good. Um, but it's right there, and, and it's also not Malachi. Malachi, right? Um, but yeah, so we're going to go through this book and, and just kind of look at maybe the big points here. Okay, but I love Malachi. I love what it's saying um, because personally, it challenges me. Every time I study this book, I come away challenged. I come away with um, just a fresh challenge from the Lord to seek his face and to live for him in a way that's more honest and sincere. And I just think it's great. Um, so I'm going to tell you guys a story about Malachi and how I came to fall in love with it so much. And then we'll kind of jump into the text while you're finding it um, in your Bibles. But so, you guys, the first time I ever taught a Bible study anywhere, anytime, it was on the book of Malachi. Which, if you were going to like sit down and plan to lead a Bible study, right, you would probably not pick this really obscure book in the Old Testament. That's probably not what you do. You probably start with like a gospel, like John or something. Um, but what happened was I was on a mission trip. It was the first mission trip I ever went on, and we were at a Choctaw Indian Reservation. And we've been working all day. We did this vacation Bible school in the evening for like two-year-olds through 18, okay? And um, we're sharing the gospel. And it's late at night. I was exhausted. And so I went into the hall because it was like kind of a bunkhouse and like girls over here, guys over here. I went into the hallway with my Bible and I sat down and I was just trying to like get alone, get some peace and quiet, get some time with God, right? I was a new Christian, but I kind of like started to do this quiet time thing. And I was like, if I don't do it here, I will completely forget by the time I get home to like ever have a quiet time again. So I like decided I was going to have this time with God and I sit in the hall. But I don't know if you guys have ever noticed this. If you sit alone somewhere with a book, particularly the Bible, it is like a magnet for people to come talk to you. I don't know, has anybody ever experienced this? Like you're in a public place, you open the Bible, and everyone is like, what is that you're reading? You must be so bored that you're reading your Bible, you must need me to talk to you. Like, that's how it feels to me. Anyways, every time I'm out in public, I open my Bible, it's like, people just come. And I'm like, do you want to know God? Like, you know, at this point, I'm like, do you know about this book? Do you know what's, you know, because I'm like, obviously, there must be some connection. I don't really know. But this particular case, I'm sitting in the hall, and my friends just kind of start coming up. And, and, like, the first one interrupts me, doesn't want to talk about the Bible, just wants to interrupt me because she thought I was bored. <laughs> um, or feeling, like, really lonely or something. I don't really know. Um, 
and she interrupts me and I convince her I'm okay and like another friend comes by, one of the guys come by. So finally, in this moment of what I can only admit is complete inner rage <laughs> that no one will let me alone, I said, everyone go get your Bibles and open to the book of Malachi, because that was what I was reading. And you guys, to my amazement, for whatever reason, they did. <laughs> like, they all did. They all went and got their Bibles. There's about seven of us. And, and they came back and sat down with them, and then I helped them find Malachi, because no one knew where it was. Um, and, and I didn't know how to teach a Bible study. I planned to teach a Bible study. So they're like, what are you doing? I said, I'm reading the Bible. Let's read it together. And I said, okay. So we went, and we went verse by verse, and we just like read a verse. And I'd say, what do you think that means? Anybody ever been in a Bible study with me and heard that? <laughs> what do you think that means, right? Like, this is what we did. We read a verse. What do you think that means? We'd talk about it. And when nobody else had any thoughts left, we would read the next verse. And then I'd say, what do we think this means? <laughs> and we went like that, you guys, till four in the morning. We talked through the book of Malachi. And it was probably one of the coolest experiences in my life. Because um, we learned that the word of God is living and active. And just through that, like, really, really rough attempt. Because I wasn't really trying to teach the Bible. I was just trying to read the Bible. But reading it together in community, it was crazy enriching. If you ever get a chance to sit with, like, friends and just, like, read scripture together and just talk about what it means and what God's showing them through it and what God's showing you through it, man, it's crazy enriching. Um, so that's kind of where I fell in love with the book of Malachi really good friend Amanda she was part of that night and it's so funny because every time I see her like we live in completely opposite cities now um but every time I see her even if it's been five years she'll say remember Malachi and it's kind of like this homing thing for us that we're like yeah like that night we sat together in God's presence and we just talked about his word it was so incredible um so I think it's kind of neat because that's really where a passion for studying the word came from like out of that one night and then we did it like the next night and the next night and that's really where a passion for encouraging other people to study God's word came from. It's like all in this one little trip in the middle of a hallway really late at night in the book of Malachi and no one knew what it was. Um, so we're going to look at um, a few verses in this. We're not going to go through the whole book. You guys can do that later. Um, but we're going to kind of look at the main themes here and talk through it for a little bit. So a lot of times people don't think this is a cheery book. Okay people that have read it, they don't think it's like hopeful and cheery, but it really does start with a message of hope. In Malachi verses 1, or chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, it says this. This is the message that the Lord gave to Israel through the prophet Malachi. I have always loved you, says the Lord. So, while this book has a reputation for being harsh, it starts with hope, right? These are words of loves. And, and these words, I've always loved you, God is speaking them to the people of Israel, but they can also be understood for us. Um, if you're in a relationship with Christ, like if you're a Christian and you accepted Christ as, as Lord and Savior, God loves you. Loves you. He looks at you with love um, based on what Christ has done for us. Okay, and so at the time, just a little bit of background, because background's good, especially when you're dealing with like old, old books in the Bible. Um, at the time Malachi was written, the Israelite people had grown really cynical of God's love for them. They had been exiled, which meant they were sent to other lands, and they had returned. The temple that had been destroyed, where they worshipped, had been rebuilt. Um, but they kind of felt like they were just still waiting for this awesome, exciting stuff um, that 
that the prophets had foretold to happen. And so they were kind of just stuck in this waiting. And as they waited, they started to worry that God had forgotten them. I don't know if any of you guys have been there, but sometimes in times of waiting, it's really easy to think, man, has God forgotten me? Um, they were looking around at their lives, at all the external things, and they saw that the government around them was corrupt. They saw that poverty was overwhelming all around them. Um, and so when they saw these things, they assumed, based on what they saw, that God didn't love them. Um, that's not true, of course. We can look at our, at our lives, like the external stuff, what's going on around, on around us, and if it's not going um, the way we think it should, right? Or sometimes we'll look at our life and we'll say, like, since this happened, God doesn't love me, but it doesn't really work like that, right? So I put it this way because sometimes I like fake math. You guys see fake math? <laughs> okay, so fake math. So bad day does not equal God doesn't love me, right? Bad experience does not equal God doesn't love me, right? Even catastrophic, horrible, life-shaking experience does not equal God doesn't love me. Um, it's bad math because there's no numbers. And there's no <laughs> equation. Two things on either side of equal. Um, but yeah, so bad things in our external life, that doesn't mean that God doesn't love us. But a lot of times it's easy for us to be like Israel at the beginning of this book and things aren't going our way and we look at that instead of looking at who God is we look at the things that aren't going our way and we don't see evidence of God's love played out maybe in the way that we think it should be played out um, and so we begin to doubt God's love right and so if that's you I think these words are for you I've loved you right I've always loved you so I'll read on um, in verses 6 through 8, there in Malachi chapter 1, it says this. The Lord of heaven's army says to the priest, A son honors his father, and a servant respects his master. If I am your father and master, where are the honor and respect I deserve? Yet you have shown contempt for my name. But you ask, how have we ever shown contempt for your name? You have shown contempt by offering defiled sacrifices on my altar. Then you ask, how have we defiled the sacrifices? You defile them by saying the altar of the Lord deserves no respect. When you give blind animals as sacrifices, isn't that wrong? And isn't it wrong to offer animals that are crippled and diseased? Try giving gifts like that to your governor and see how pleased he is, says the Lord of Heaven's army. And so, like we've kind of said in this series, the form of worship that the people of Israel before Jesus used was sacrifices and offerings okay and so there's really specific rules like if you go into the old testament especially if you look at like exodus leviticus numbers deuteronomy it gives really specific qualifications that word is hard specific qualifications for what is to be offered and so he's saying that the lord is saying man you're offering me these like sacrifices that are that are not so good and you're offering me not what I ask. And he's like, man, this gift wouldn't even be good enough to give your governor, right? And I think um, that's kind of like telling because it's, it's showing like, man, the people were giving better things to the people around them and, and to the world than they were giving to God himself. And so because 
Are any of you guys visual? Do you like visual learning? I like visual learning. So I brought an example. Okay. So let's say that you're going to offer God a sheep. Right? unblemished, so that means not spotted. He looks pretty healthy, right? Um, he looks he looks like a good sheep. He looks like if you had this sheep, you would be like saving him up for like some schnitzel, or um, they probably didn't eat schnitzel, but <laughs> that's what I think. I think that's what I think. Sheep, because I'm in Germany. <laughs> like, it was really good. Um, but like, if you had this sheep, you would think, I want to eat this sheep, right? And so this is what they should be giving God, but they're not giving God this kind of sheep, right? They're keeping it for themselves. And instead, they're giving God this kind of sheep. <laughs> Do you see him? He is skinny. He is blind. He is lame. And part of his leg is falling off. Um, this is for levity, right? But... But this is like a really good picture of what God is saying. He's saying like, I want you to offer me your best, right? And instead you are giving me thing that won't live till two days from now. <laughs> um, and like, so we're gonna kind of like talk about what that means. But God's saying that you're not giving as they should. Um, and I think what sticks out to me this passage, in this passage, this time as I've been studying, is that implies they're giving better things to the world than they're giving to God. They're showing disrespect for God, not because they're not giving to him, but because they're not giving their best. And you guys, we do this too. When we don't give God our best, like the best of our time, our resources, our energy, our attitudes, um, like we're doing the same thing. We're kind of disrespecting God. Sometimes... We give our best to the world, to other things we do, but we leave God in the dust. Isn't this wrong? And so here's the question I want to pose to you guys, and then we're going to talk about it a little bit, and then we'll like um, come back to it at the end. But here's the question. If my life, so it's, it's for you, but if my life were a sheep on the altar, what would it look like? Right? If my life were a sheep on the altar, would it look like that, that cute, happy, fat, healthy sheep? Or would it look like the blind, scrawny, limping sheep? <laughs> Sorry, it's funny looking. Um, or would it be somewhere in between, right? Would it be spotless, unblemished, or would it be lame and blind? You guys, we need to ask God to help us to give our best, even when we have little to give, even when those around us aren't giving their best, because we can't compare ourselves to others, right? We can only compare ourselves to what God says. And that's really easy to nod our head and say yes, but it's so hard in practice, isn't it? Because um, I catch myself so many times that instead of looking at what God says and what his word says, how I should live, man, I'll look at my friends and I'm like, well, it's okay. You know, and it's like I slip into not living for God the way I should. Not because God said not to, but because I'm looking at people. I can't look at people. I've got to look at, at God and what he says to do. Our heart's goal has to be to please God, not to please people. So then, this is probably, heads up, where the book of Malachi gets 
um, the, the name of being harsh. Verse 10, but he says this. This is what God says. He says, how I wish one of you would shut the temple doors so those worthless sacrifices could not be offered. I'm not pleased with you, says the Lord of Heaven's army. I will not accept your offerings. You guys, that's harsh, right? And I think the more I read it, I don't so much think of it as just like angry, harsh God. It's like emotional. Like this verse right here, it's emotionally charged from God. It's saying God would rather not be worshipped in the temple than for worthless sacrifices to be offered. So why, right? It's really easy to think like, well, I mean, as long as we're like doing the thing, isn't that good enough? Um, But if we're just going through the motions, offering God something that means nothing to us, it isn't worship. Like if we're just doing the thing, but it doesn't come from the heart, it's, it's not worship at all. He's saying that by the temple being open, people could think that they were worshiping. And at least if it were shut, they would realize the reality that they weren't. And so today at church, like, churches are probably not going to shut their doors. Even if they realize all the people in their congregation are not sincerely worshiping, they're probably not going to shut their doors, right? Chi Alpha, we get the sense that, well, we're like a missions thing, so it's a little bit different because we're reaching out. We have a sense that everyone's like not worshiping sincerely. We're not going to quit doing Chi Alpha, right? But we know as believers that we have a responsibility to not be like this. To not be the kind of worshiper that makes God want to shut the doors and be like, huh, I'd rather you not, right? So don't be like this at church or Chi Alpha or anywhere. Make a conscious effort in yourself and a conscious choice and commitment to worship God wherever you are, whatever your situation is. Um, and it makes me think of the widow's mite, which is like the story in the Gospels. And it talks about the Pharisee that he went and he like made this big deal about his giving. And, and it was probably a large offering and he dropped it in the plate. And then this little widow came and she put in just two cents. And um, Jesus said, like, which of them is Father God pleased with, right? And it's the widow because it's like she gave all she had. She was all in. Even though it wasn't much, to God it was beautiful. And the Pharisee who made a big deal of it, you know, it says in the Sermon on the Mount, he got the only reward he'll deserve, which is everybody saw it. Um, which, like, if you think about it, that fades really fast. So not actually a good reward. Um, it's not that they offered God nothing, but it's that it meant nothing to them. It wasn't heartfelt. Because God is after our heart. If it isn't from our heart, it's worthless to him. Okay? And so think about this for a second, because, like, I really want us to get this. But God is God, right? God is God. Holy, infinite, able to do miracles, omniscient, like, in control of everything made the universe. God is God. So, if he can do anything, does he, like, in a sense, need us to serve? No. If he's surrounded by heavenly choirs of angels and beasts, does he need a Jackie with bronchitis to try and sing to him on a microphone? Not at all, right? Um, the streets of the heavenly city are, pra- are paved with gold. So in a sense, does he need our giving? No. No, God doesn't need it. But, but, when we do these things from our hearts with love for him, he's pleased by them. And that's how we connect with him, and that's how we grow in relationship with him. So like, worship is about us from the heart connecting to God and knowing him. Um, 
they each become a way for us to commune with God. But if our heart's not in it, it might be better just not to do it. Which a lot of times that's not what we do. Our heart's not in it, and we just go do it anyways. And and at the end of the day, we're really tired. And the thing is, it's like, to God, we didn't offer anything. Because we just did it out of, like, obligation or people were watching or whatever. Um, and so the Hebrew word here, I think it's shenim, but I don't pronounce Hebrew very well, is what the word worthless is. But it basically means out of favor without a cost or free, devoid of cost for nothing in vain. So basically, it's saying that when we do things that aren't heartfelt, it costs us nothing, right? And it doesn't cost us anything. It's not something um, that's that's coming out of us to God, then, like, it's kind of like, what's, what's the point? Um, a little earlier in the Bible, this concept comes up, and so we're going to look at this verse. We talked about this in Life Group, my Life Group girls. Um, but it's Amos 5.21, and he says it this way. I hate all your show and pretense, the hypocrisy of your religious festivals and the solemn assemblies. I will not accept your burnt offerings and grain offerings. I won't even notice all your choice peace offerings. I weigh with your noisy hymns of praise. I will not listen to the music of your harps. Instead, I want to see a mighty flood of justice, an endless river of righteous living. You guys, I know, like, to look at it just on face value, that is harsh. But I think one of the things about, like, this one in particular is, like, as a musician, I'm like, man, if I stand up here and I worship God and I don't mean it, like, it's not only, like, pointless, it kind of makes him sick. He's like, I don't want that. And, and so, like, I think as I've, as I've like, studied this and, and kind of studied what God wants from a sacrifice and what he's saying to the people of Malachi, what he's saying in Amos, it's like, man, if my heart's not in it, then I'm doing it wrong. Um, so, so whether or not it sounds perfect, whether or not, like, I go out and I serve and it goes the way I, I want it to go, it's like, did I do it for God? Did I do it with all my heart? And if I did, man, I didn't fail. Like, if I get up here and sing and, like, my voice cracks ten times, but I'll sing with all my heart to God, he's more pleased. If I stand up here and it's absolutely insanely amazing and I have like all the guitar skills in the world and you guys are like, wow, <laughs> but I didn't mean it because I was too focused on like playing cool things and looking cool, right? Um, God is after our heart. And so Romans 12, it tells us that our lives are to be living sacrifices. It says this in Romans 12, 1 and 2. I plead with you to give your bodies to God because all of he has done for you. Let them be a living sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn what God's will is for you, which is pleasing and perfect. You know, so what are we offering the Lord? Because these are fun, right? Are <laughs> offering God this? Right. But I think sometimes it's like I laugh about it and he looks all sad and sick, but that's probably what my heart looks like if it were she. Um, but this is what he wants, right? So do you offer the very least of your time, the very least of your energy and resources? Are you truly giving God your all? You guys, if we only offer God the minimum, he's not pleased. He doesn't want the minimum. 
Don't offer blemished lives full of indifference and sin. I think the point here is, you guys, God isn't asking for more than he was willing to give, right? Because God sent his son, Jesus, and and if God's asking for us to live our whole lives unto him, the man God sent Jesus, and Jesus did live his whole life for us, to the point that, like, he died on the cross. And that's the death that I deserve, that we all deserve, because we've all done wrong. Jesus never did wrong. He lived a sinless life, but he died on that cross for us to make us right with God, so we could have a relationship with God. Right? Jesus died for us, and it was like through that death, and three days later when he rose from the dead, that he conquered sin and death for us, and we can have this relationship with God. We can have this relationship where we worship him, and it means something. We don't have to kill sheep anymore, right? We don't have to kill bulls, and we don't have to, like, take birds and snap off their heads, because, man, if you want to get into it, like, read Leviticus, it's a little bit, ew. And I don't know that I would have made it very long as an ancient Israelite, okay? Like, because I read it, and I'm like, uh, like, if you really picture it, because I picture things when I read them, I'm like, ooh. But Jesus came, and he was willing to give himself. He gave up his life that we would be made whole and right with God. He was the perfect sacrifice. You guys, not only was he a sacrifice, he was the example, right? He wasn't just the sacrifice, he was the example. The Bible teaches us that we're to be like Christ. So when we're looking at our friends and we're like, I'm going to be a Christian like Jade, right? Jade's pretty cool. She loves Jesus a lot. But no, I need to be a follower of Christ like Christ, right? And so I can't look at any other person like Christ, Jesus Christ. He is our example. So we need to strive to give God our all, not just our stuff or our sheep. Right? Their whole lives. Um, so how should our worship be? Jesus gave us this answer in John chapter 4 um, when he was talking to the woman at the well, which is like just a great story. And so I totally encourage you guys to go read it. But in John chapter 4, he sits down by this woman, and they're talking about worship. She's a Samaritan, so they worship God in a different place than the Jewish people traditionally do. And she says, which one of us is right? Right? Which is a good question. Like, these questions come up, Right? This is a real-life scenario. We sit down with somebody, and they're like, how do we worship? Which one of us is right? And this is what Jesus says. He says, believe me, dear woman, the time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans know very little about the one you worship, while we Jews know all about him, for salvation comes through the Jews. But the time is coming, indeed it's here now, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship him that way, for, this, for God is spirit. So those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So you guys, these are the qualifications for a worshiper of Christ today, spirit and truth. When we talk about worshiping in truth, that's, that's kind of what we've been hitting on this whole time, that it's supposed to be genuine. It can't be a ritual. It can't be going through the motions. Right? To worship in truth is to offer God something that's real. So I don't read truth, I just think real, right? Offer God real. And to worship in spirit means being in accord with God's own nature. So since God is spirit, right? Genuine worship requires a relationship with God through Christ, okay? It's God is spirit, so we have to be born again of the spirit so we can worship in spirit and in truth. Um, Malachi 3, verses 1 and other ones. 
I made that note. Um, <laughs> says, look, I am sending my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Then the Lord you are seeking will suddenly come into his temple, for he will be like a blazing fire that refines metal, or a strong soap that bleaches clothes. He will sit like a refiner of silver, burning away the dross. He will purify the Levites, refining them like gold and silver, so they may once again offer acceptable sacrifices to the Lord. Then once more, the Lord will accept the offerings brought to him by the people, as he did in the past. You guys, Jesus is the messenger that's being talked about in this verse. This is before he comes, but Jesus is, is the messenger, and um, he's supposed to become the center of worship for us. He's also the refiner. Um, and so I found this, and it kind of explains what this refining process that's going on in this verse is talking about. In um, some commentary, it said this. During the process of refining metals, the raw metal is heated with fire until it melts. The impurities would separate from it, and then they would rise to the surface. When they rose to the surface, they were skimmed off, leaving the pure metal. Without this heating and melting, there could be no purifying. As the impurities were skimmed off the top, the worker would be able to see their reflection in the clean, pure surface. So as this metal was refined, which is really a really good picture of what God does in our lives as he grows us, as he walks us through different situations and different trials, right? As the metal is refined, the guy that was like sitting there refining the metal, as it heated, all the impurities would come to the top, right? I don't know about you guys, but when bad stuff happens in my life, or I have a really bad day, or I'm sick, you know what comes to the top? All the icky stuff, right? Um, but when we realize that, man, we can be like the metalist, the refiner, and let God spread it away, right? And and so it says that the refiner, he would refine the metal, and he would scrape, and it would and it would boil or heat, and he would scrape, and it would heat, and he would scrape, and eventually it would become so pure and so clear that when he looked in the molten metal, right, he could see his reflection. Um. I think that's really cool because as God purifies us, right, as God purifies us in our lives, his reflection will become more and more and more clear to the people around us. This is what our worship is to be. When we truly worship Jesus in spirit and in truth, we reflect him to everybody around us. Right? Like, have you ever met one of those people that they're just so in love with Jesus that it makes you like, what do they have? Like, who do they have? What do they know about God that I don't know? Like, I have a few friends like that, and just when they talk about their time in prayer, they talk about what they've been reading the Word, man, it makes me hungry to go read the Word and to spend time with God in prayer because they're so in love with Him. That's really how we're all to be, that we are so in love with Jesus and our lives become so purely committed to Him that when people encounter us and talk to us and sit by us in class or, like, walk um, next to us in the grocery store, they're like, man, there's something different. It's because they see Christ reflected in our lives. And so, obviously, this is not just talking about music, but it's talking about our attitudes, how we serve, how we treat others, how we study the word, how we carry ourselves in school, our work ethic. That's a hard one. All of those things can be done as unto the Lord, right? Like it says in 1 Corinthians, Whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. You guys, anything can be worshipped to God if it's done from a heart to please God, right? 
even the most mundane things. Like sometimes, really, like it's funny because I've gotten to a place where we're like, maybe I get to think about this because I have three children, right? Three children, where three children's worth of clothes, right? And, and there was a time a, f a few months back that I spent two hours, which is not uncommon. Matt is awesome, he usually folds laundry. Um, because I hate it and it'll just sit there forever. But I spent two hours folding the laundry, right? And at first my attitude was really bad. And then, so my attitude is bad, I turn on some music, which happened to be worship music. And as I'm folding the laundry, right? I start thinking about this verse, that whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. And I was like, well, I could just fold this laundry or I could fold this laundry as an act of like worship that's like serving my family and I'm gonna fold it because I love them. And like, man, which of those is better, right? Like you could just fold the laundry and it's like boring and it stinks and it's horrible. <laughs> or you could fold the laundry and worship and know that like you're serving your family and like whether or not they say thanks, you got an opportunity to, to serve them and do something um, out of your heart with love for them and, and like hopefully that'll overflow into them seeing the love of Christ, right? And like, which of those is better, right? Holding the laundry onto the Lord. Um, and then at some point, my middle one came in and she was like, what is happening? Because I was like worshiping and um, singing really loud and dancing with my laundry. Um, right? But whatever we do, we can make a choice to do it for the glory of God. Right? Whatever we do. So we're going to have some, some time to like respond in prayer. Um, and I kind of like pose these questions to you guys and then we'll pray. Um, but I want to go back to that question I asked earlier, the beginning. If my life were a sheep on the altar, what would it look like? Right? If my life were one of these sheep, which one would it be? Um, and there's some, kind of some questions that go with that. The first one would be like, are you a sheep at all? Right? Is your life a sheep? Like, have you accepted Christ as Lord and Savior? Um, and if not, you guys, like, that is so, so important actually like the most important decision right um because our eternity is based on that decision and so if you haven't man we're gonna have time to accept christ tonight as lord and savior um so are you a sheep at all is your life on the altar right jesus might be challenging you to lay down your life to him he might be calling you to do something he might be challenging you to kind of step out of the things you're comfortable with and love him in any way, um, or go all in in your love for him. And the last question is, are you unblemished? Could Jesus be challenging you to offer him your best? Right? Or is there something that you know, like, man, like this attitude, or this sin, or this distraction is in the way of me giving God my best? Um, are you unblemished? So why? Why does this matter? When we worship God half-heartedly, you guys, what does that teach everyone around us about our God? Right? When we live for him, but we don't live all in, do you think the people that see us take our God seriously? I was like, man, even if his followers aren't all in, like, he must not be that good, right? Um, if God is truly worthy of our love and of us living our lives for him, we have to live like that or only lying to ourselves. And really, we're lying to the world around us. If we live like God isn't 
really important. Like, he isn't holy. If we live like that, we're not just lying to ourselves. We're lying to everyone around us because, like, man, he deserves all glory, all honor, all praise. Um, you know, and, and there's this thing that Tim Keller says, and I like to share this, and I'll pray. Um, but he says, you know you've found a real God when he can disagree with you and challenge you. So, like, there's a lot of teachings about God out there, not necessarily God of the Bible, but it's like, man, if it's a God in your life and you control it, that's not a God, right? But if it's God, like God of the universe, God of the Bible, and he can challenge you, like in the book of Malachi, and he can, he can push back, man, that's, that's a, a real force. That's a real power. That's a real God. It's one of the ways we know that God is real because he can challenge us. He can, um, like, cause us to think differently and point out when we're wrong, like, through his word and through the Holy Spirit. Um, so we know we found a real God when he can disagree with us um, and challenge us. So we're just going to take some time um, to pray. And then, okay, we'll just we'll do that first. Um, so you guys would bow your head and close your eyes. Lord Jesus, we just pray that you would speak to us tonight. God, if our lives were sheep on the altar, would you reveal to us, Holy Spirit, what they would look like? God, I pray, um, Lord, for any that might not know you as Lord and Savior, Jesus, that you would call them to know you, call them to repentance and to saving knowledge of you tonight. Um, God, if there's any that you're challenging to lay down their lives, God, I pray that they're responding to you tonight. Um, God, if there's any that, that are not giving you their best, and Lord, you've put maybe your thumb on an area that, that they're challenged in, God, I pray that you would help them to release that thing to you tonight. In the name of Jesus. You guys, so with every head bowed, 